Do you love NASCAR and all things racing? Then you've come to the right place. I'm Derek Cope. And I'm Alicia Cope. We are your hosts. And here on Race Theory, we talk about all things asphalt racing. Our life on the road, maintaining good sponsor relationships, as well as balancing our work and family life as a team. Stick around and hopefully our tips and experiences will help you reach your own goals. Welcome back to episode three. When we left off, I was 1984 and five and I tenure with uh, George Jefferson. Um, before we go on, uh, I really want to touch base about what we're going to talk about later in the podcast with regard to the next gen car in NASCAR Cup Series. We're talking about concussions specifically, about what we're seeing, there's some reason why we're seeing some of those things, and uh, you know, just kind of discuss that uh, that whole part. So, with that, um, 1986 was uh, an interesting year for me. It was really uh, a great opportunity, one that I had been looking for, and uh, ended up being with a gentleman or two gentlemen out of Seattle, Washington, uh, with Rebanco Ltd. and the Steve, uh, it was Steve Banchero and Warren Rosori. And uh, they. Warren Rosori, I think I've uh, seen some articles in your old scrapbooks. Wasn't he really good looking? Yeah, he was, yeah, old, uh, he was um, you know, a real Italian. I mean, like full blooded Italian looking, right? Um, he was very, very, you know, very good looking guy, young guy. I think he was 44 years old at the time that he actually, you know, took over and became a car owner for uh, this team. Uh, you know, had a Ferrari, uh, you know, and obviously uh, just just a high profile, you know, guy that really, you know, really stood out, right? And you could you could tell that, uh, you know, he obviously had had money, but he was just, uh, you know, very, wore suits all the time, you know, just, uh, you know, the epitome of of, uh, of a Seattle businessman. I remember a uh, article um, where it was titled "The New Sex Symbols of Motorsports," and it was you and Warren. <laughs> I, I don't know about that one. But, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it was again. You know, I mean, we were we were young. You know, he was young, I was young, and uh, Jackie Johnson came along, and also Eric Horn, who was on my George Jefferson racing team, and Eric was a pick. Remember, real, I mean, this guy was like I don't know. I think he was seven something, seven foot tall, and uh, really, oh yeah, big guy, and uh, and and ran and, and drove a Honda. So it was, uh, yeah. So he, you know, it was, so see him unravel himself out of that Honda was something, you know, to be seen, but we, it was the three of us and the opportunity came for us to take the 79 car and move East. So it was go East young man for the, for what the time that I really wanted to go. And Jackie was originally born in Campobello, South Carolina. And it was right there, you know, outside of Inman and then Spartanburg as well. So, you know, we had packed up everything we had and uh, we moved and drove back across the United States and we, you know, basically settled in Campobello. And I can remember, you know, myself, I was on my own and I drove uh, my car and drove all the way back. And I remember driving over the mountain out of Hendersonville and dropping down into Landrum and then on into Campobello and finding Jackie's place and meeting, uh, you know, his mother and uh Quite the culture shock to the deep south. 
It was actually, I mean, I would learn, you know, not too far from that time. Uh, you know, you had to learn how to drive with your right hand on top of the wheel because everybody's on the porch waving at you. And so, <laughs> you know, it was, it was really different. And we settled in a town, you know, Campobello had one flashing light and it had a little restaurant and a, and a post office. So it was the epitome of the small Southern town. And, uh, Leroy, uh, Leroy Mabry, had this building, uh, and Leroy is a personal, you know, friend, you know, uh, from the youth of, uh, of Jackie. And so, you know, we've become, since then we've become great friends and still are to this day. And, uh, he, you know, he, you know, leased the building to us and that's where we started, um, the racing team there and got ready for the, uh, Winston cup season in 1986. So it was, um, you know, we had to we had to order a new car um, from Laughlin, and I think we ordered two, but we we ordered uh, a car from Laughlin, and it just took a long time to get. It was a front steer car, and pretty much everything I'd driven at that point, uh, you know, as far as the older cars of George's were all rear stroke, you know, banjo um, and Hutcherson Pagan cars. So, and it was a new Laughlin car, so we were always going down to Jackie's and and down to. Um, Simpsonville, South Carolina, uh, and, you know, going over the build of the car and that type of thing. So, but we, you know, obviously, you know, had some downtime as well because we're waiting for the car to come and, you know, we got to know, you know, people around the, the area and got to know James Hilton. And obviously you have, uh, met James and, uh, we spent, uh, a lot of time at the fish camps hanging out with James and, uh, you know, it was, a it was a good it was a great time. Uh, probably one of the, you know, most memorable You speak of it times. very lovingly every time you, you talk about Campobello, South Carolina, as, as if it definitely was your second home. Yeah, it was, it, it was unique simply because, you know, I, I wasn't going to run a full schedule. It was a limited schedule. Uh, we had a lot of free time. I lived on, on a little um, two-bedroom apartment above a garage on um, Lake Bowen. And Jackie and, and Eric had little little houses on the lake as well, and uh, so we were, you know, you know, going over there and hanging out, watching the races, and then eating those great, you know, peaches from Gaffney, uh, which you just, you know, you can't even I can't even tell you how good those peaches are, and you know, you would just, you know, you just got to really enjoy, you know, the deep South and then get to go to some races. So I was going to some races that I couldn't race in, like Darlington, for the first time, you know, and really just, you know, really just trying to absorb and take in, you know, everything that, you know, Winston Cup racing had to offer as well as the Deep South. And I really, you know, fell in love with the area and met a lot of nice people and a lot of, had a lot of friends and, you know, have a lot of friends to this day remaining from it. So, but, uh, really got ready to go racing and, you know, our first race, we went to Martinsville and, uh, you know, it's a short track, it's something that, you know, I'm used to. And, uh, we went there and Jackie, you know, had prepared a great race car, really good looking car too. Again, like Jackie always did with, you know, it was, you know, red, white, and black, a beautiful car and went there and we qualified. I think we, we qualified 17th sat between Gantt and Bonnet. And then we finished ninth. And, uh, you know, that was, uh, for our first outing, it was, you know, pretty impressive. I remember and, Jackie saying that's when people really kind of uh, started noticing, hey, this kid might know how to drive. Yeah, we were, it was, it was, it was a great way to start things off. And then, you know, from there, you know, we just, you know, we progressed and we tried to, we tested at Talladega, um, you know, and uh, that's where I first ran like, like 202 and a half, you know, 202 miles an hour and a half basically. And, uh, was wide open, you know, around Talladega for the first time. And, you know, before restrictor plates were even, you know, thought of. 
and you know just a rude awakening for how did that feel yeah it was it was you know at first it was a little difficult you know to go wide open you know just because you'd never experienced anything like that before and you know you know restrictor plates and there's a threshold you know when you get over 200 miles an hour you know things you know there's a lot going on with the car and uh, you know but yeah i mean once you did it and you know you got used to driving it was truly you know something that you just fell in love with and i loved I knew then that I would love speedway racing and I loved being wide open. I loved, you know, having that speed and, you know, what the car, that sensations the car gave you. And so, but, you know, throughout that year, we only, we only ran a few races. We really did not, you know, get the opportunity to go because our cars came so late and we really did not get a chance to, to do that. And throughout this whole process, I think Warren, uh, was missing the fact that he had his race team, but he wasn't able to see it. He wasn't able to be there. And, you know, he just, he wanted, he wanted it back home so he could have something tangible and go to the races and enjoy it. And so, you know, we got the word that, you know, you know, we, you know, we, he wanted us to come home. He wanted us to come back to the Pacific Northwest and race out there, which was, you know, was not brutal. something that you wanted to do. You felt like that was making you go backwards. Yes, it, it did. And I, I mean, once you had got to the East Coast and you had gone to all these races, you physically had, you know, I was traveling with Pat Patterson to some, a lot of the races and he had on pit road productions, you know, where he had a radio show to do on Monday morning. So, you know, I didn't really have, you know, the way to get to all these races. So, you know, I was driving Pat to some of these races and then I would drive him home you know, so we can get back to the radio show. Right. But I got to go. So, you know, I was going to a lot of the races, um, and then to go out and run successfully, like I did, you just, you know, you was so compelling just that you, you know, you wanted to stay there. And then, you know, it was gut wrenching to have to drive back across the United States, take everything back to Seattle and, uh, settled into a, a shop downtown Seattle, not far from where, um, you know, um, uh, the field, you know, the field is and we're, uh, we had the Peterbilt truck, Western Peterbilt truck series, um, outfit. So living in downtown Seattle and, you know, this was about the time that they had the Shucks Tacoma Grand Prix, which was a street course, um, you know, oval uh, road racing around the Tacoma dome and Shucks, um, auto parts, uh, was actually sponsoring it. And so we had prepared a car for that. And, uh, you know, we went there and, uh, I sat on the pole, uh, but I wrecked the thing when I, uh, qualified on the, like I get the first lap I, I knocked off, you know, the pole and then I went for the second lap and I just hung the thing out and got sideways coming off the last turn, coming to the checker and, uh, put it in the fence and tore up the back of the car. And Jackie, the boys had to work, you know, feverishly on that thing. And it had actually compromised the fuel cell and bent it, which we didn't really have the ability to fix, but we got the car back squared away and. And then uh, my arch rival uh, was Herschel McGriff, obviously the old man, and um, you oh, know McGriff. a lot of bantering going on, right? The youth versus the uh, elder statesman, and uh, so you know I'm on pole and I lead the race, and you know I'm pretty much leading the race and end up running out of gas, and um, basically Herschel wins the race, I get second, and you know I doing you know I do my post race interviews and. Uh, Later on, you know, you, you don't really know this would come to, you know, to, to fruition, but it was probably a pivotal moment in my life and my career, uh, that I finished second 
and I got the opportunity to speak uh, on the uh, radio and do the interview after the race. So we'll go into that later on. Uh, but because was, of who was in the audience because listening of who to was it listening, at that yeah, time. Yeah, who was in the audience listening to it. Uh, so we'll touch bases on that later. But it was a, yeah, it was a moment that really, you know, was meant to happen. And so, you know, at that point, you know, we'd run the rest of the year. And here I was, I was in Seattle again, back home on the West Coast where I didn't want to be. And I was under a three-year contract with Warren Rosori. And that winter, we had the banquet in California. And I went to the banquet and uh, met a gentleman down there. And his name was Fred Stoke out of Lakeport, California. And Fred, you know, wanted to go back east and run a car. And asked me, would I be interested in driving the car and going back east again? And I said, yeah, yeah, I would, I would love to go back East, (laughs) but I said, you know, I have a three-year contract with Warren Rosori. And I said, I would have to broach that subject with Warren to see if he would let me out of my contract. So Fred said, well, well, go talk to him. Let's see what he has to say and see if we can do that. But he says, "I'm, I'm going back East. And he said, I, I want to, I want you to drive it. So I, I went home and, you know, spent some time with Warren, discussed you know, the fact that I had an opportunity to go back East. And I said, uh, I, you know, I know that, you know, we have a a three-year contract and, but I just, you know, with what I did back there and and what we did, I said, I just, I really feel like that's where I need to be. And that's where I want to be. And, you know, I said, I've just wanted to see if you would let me out of my contract. And Warren said, what I'll do, he said, is if you can, you know, prove that Fred is going to go back East for sure and is going to run races. Then he said, I will let you out of your contract. And, uh, so, you know, he, you know, Warren had always been a man of his word and you you could respect that. And so I went back and I talked to Fred and I got Fred on the phone with Warren and the two spoke and Fred told him that he was, wanted to go back east. He was going to go back on a limited schedule, probably about 12, 14 races, and he wanted me to drive. And it was a great, great opportunity for me and really felt like that, you know, um, he would be hopeful that he would, uh, you know, let me out of my contract. So I went to Warren. You know, Warren was a man of his word, and uh, he let me out of, uh, out of my contract. So I, the day after Christmas, I loaded up my car again, and I drove to Lakeport, California, and I loaded up his rig with all his stuff. And then we drove the southern route this time across the United States back again and drove back up the mountain that I came down to Campobello and went to Hendersonville, North Carolina, which was um, right there close to Arden, North Carolina, where Banjo Matthews was at, who was building race cars, and settled in a little shop right there uh, in Hendersonville. And the deal was I was not making any money. I was racing for food and he was supplying a place for me to live and, you know, paying for my dry cleaning or whatever it took and, you know, and fed us. And we had a little two bedroom apartment above a garage. Above a garage. Above a garage. Seems like to be the the theme. Me and the garages. (laughs) And uh, this one though only had two bedrooms and basically, you know, Fred was in one of the bedrooms the owner, you know, and he wasn't there all the time, but he was there, you know, obviously some of the time. And then, uh, Dave Fuge, uh, 
I had a we had a I had a crew chief first, uh, Bob. Uh, I forget Bob's for, for a last name. Uh, Edward, uh, Bill. I'm sorry, it was Bill Edwards. Bill Edwards was the crew chief, and we started off with him. And you know, things just really just didn't seem to click. And like I just you know we didn't feel like that uh, it was going to be what we needed. And I uh, ended up you know I ended up calling Dave Fuge and uh, brought Dave Fuge back. And then I had Jim Fox. Who, aka Teeny, uh, that was his nickname. <laughs> and uh, I wonder how we got that name. <laughs> uh, he's not Teeny, I can tell you. But uh, isn't this the guy that would stand um, over you naked in the morning after he'd make coffee, and you have this mattress on the floor, and he he he, he does this just to uh, to make you feel bad about yourself? <laughs> well, uh, I don't know what his reasoning was, but I really wasn't too enthralled with it. I can tell you that. But yeah, he had this uh, very <laughs> bad habit uh where he would get up in the morning really early he's an early riser he would get up in the morning of course stark ass naked <laughs> and he would go make coffee uh and i'm living on a mattress in the living room and that's you know that's where i sleep well you know not very good for the uh, love life for your no, love life you know there, there was no. yeah that was there was no love life there i was <laughs> i was out in plain view uh so but you know, every morning teeny would come out and make coffee and he would stand in the kitchen there naked as a jaybird. And I mean, making his coffee. And then he'd come in to wake me. Well, then he would stand over me and wake me, you know. <laughs> and then I'd wake up like, oh, teeny, what are you? Just go away, you know. So uh, I think he just loved antagonizing me. But you know, it was it was a ritual. I would From then when I heard coffee, I knew it was time to get up. I was <laughs> going to the bathroom. That was, that was the best alarm clock you ever had. It was had. the best alarm clock you ever had. You only got to see that once or twice before then, you know, you you definitely got one eye open. And uh, so, you know, that was uh, where we were at. So, you know, and again, you know, it was funny because we were running a limited schedule and I was going to run for rookie of the year in uh, 1987. And that was the same year that uh, Davey Allison was with Robert Yates Racing. Uh, in the Haviland 28 car, and he was running for Rookie of the Year, but he had a full ride with the best the best equipment you could have. So uh, it was it was a neat, a great time. You know, I knew that um, you know we weren't going to have a chance for the Rookie of the Year and, and those types of things, but it was still opportunity to run 12 or so races uh, in the Cup Series and uh, you know be where I wanted to be. And we just we worked our guts out, and it was uh, you know when we had a weekend off, you know we would obviously. Our big thrill was to drive down to Greenville and have Mexican food, and uh, that was you know that was the the highlight of your weekend, you know. <laughs> so uh, it was pretty simple living, uh, no money, no extra, you know, no extra money, just basically all about going racing and the money going in the race car. And met a lot of great people up there, you know, uh, you know John Pace up there from Pace Construction. Him and Melanie uh, got to know them, and George Bradshaw was up there, who ultimately would become an owner with Mark Smith and Dave Fuge and formed TriStar Racing in the Cup Series with the uh, Country Time Lemonade uh, mm -hmm. team. That George, so met and met George up there for the first time. And so, you know, kind of really just kind of settled in, got to know Banjo Matthews and his son and spent a lot of time up there, really learned a lot. I, Banjo seemed to, you know, you know, like me. And when I got up there, he would spend time and, you know, I was obviously just a sponge and want to understand things and he would explain it to me. So, just a great, you know, again, an extension of my, uh, my apprenticeship. And, uh, but we would, we would go on to, uh, you know, to have some success. Um, you know, uh, we were running, we ran pretty well with that car. Um, you know, we ended up, 
you know, going to, uh, you know, Mark Smith and Lloyd McCleary were doing the engines from Southern California. They were back in Reading with pro pro motor or pro power engineering is what it was at that time. And then, and Mark Smith had been working for, um, you know, uh, I think for, for someone, I can't remember who it was. And then, uh, ended up going to work for, uh, for Lloyd. And then Mark Smith became my engine, my engine tuner. And, and he was from the West Coast as well. Yes, he was. He was working for Lloyd. He was like, you know, over, and he was like our engine tuner was coming to the, um, you know, to the races with us. And, you know, they were building the motors out there and we they were making big power at that time. And that was a, a Ford and we were making some pretty big steam. And we went to Michigan and that's where we sat on the outside pole. And then the last practice, um, I was going to do a plug check and. When I, you know, did the plug check and took my foot off the accelerator, the motor um, didn't come down on the RPM when I clicked it off and the motor ran backwards for a minute. And when it did, it snapped the dowel in the uh, timing chain and we didn't know it. So just so happened we didn't have a garage spot. So we were outside under a tent and it, it rained, you know, that night and that morning. And so we were kind of late to get out there and try to like start, you know, working on the car. So, cause it was just pouring rain. And, um, you know, got through all of our pre-race stuff and ready to go and, uh, went to start the motor and it wouldn't fire. And we're like, what, you know, and, and sure enough, you know, the wood brothers come over, start trying to help us. Uh, they were, I mean, it was, it was crazy. Everybody was just trying to help us figure out why this thing wouldn't run and finally figure it out. You know, the distributor wouldn't turn. So we knew that it had broke a timing chain. You know, we didn't know exactly what, but we had a spare motor, but we didn't have no time to, uh, to change it. So we couldn't start the race. So everybody, you know, obviously says, you know, well, you know, you cheated or whatever, didn't do anything, but we made sure we came back to Michigan and we come back and I think Rusty had the poll. We came back the next time and I think we qualified 10th. I think Rusty qualified 20th. So it kind of validated the fact that we were fast and that we could come back and do it again, you know? So, well, I remember meeting, um, these people that you're speaking about at, um, the memorial of Mark Smith a few years back and, they remember it as being the most heartbreaking experience because several of them said you were the fastest in practice. And they literally thought that um, you with a group of individuals from the West Coast and these new engine builders were going to win that race. They were just um, went to bed that night just, you know, with grandeur, you know, in their hearts. And then the next day, to just be completely out of the race for something that was no one's fault. Yeah, it was devastating. I think, you know, you just, you have good things happen and then, you know, you, you don't get the chance to go showcase it. And, you know, it was just one of those things. And, um, but, you know, you just, we were fast. We knew we were fast. And then, you know, we went on that year to have a really pretty productive year. When you think about, we, I think we went to, I think Charlotte, you know, we finished like sixth and ninth or, you know, 11th. I mean, we were always having great runs uh, and we ended up having, you know, a pretty successful year, uh, but we're unable really to find a lot of sponsorship. I think Allugard came on board and, and a couple other small sponsors, but really just ran off of Fred's money and just were never able to really get a pipeline of sponsorship put together where we could, you know, you know, carry on and, you know, we were just showcasing what we could do and, uh, you know, 
you know, and of course Lloyd and, and Mark were making big power. And, uh, you know, I really felt like that, you know, we had something that we could really, you know, uh, have made work, uh, or for a long period of time. Um, but I remember coming, you know, coming back from a race and going back to Hendersonville and getting there. And I did, I mean, unbeknownst to me, Fred had loaded up everything. I think he had two cars. We had two cars, you know, we had two motors or, or whatever, and just, you know, a small amount of parts and pieces and stuff. And, and Fred had loaded up everything, the cars and his equipment and everything in the transporter. And she was gone and had locked the doors and the power was turned off. And, um, so, you know, you come back and, you know, I didn't even really get the word that he was done, but he had, you know, he was out of money and had physically just give up the ghost and packed her up and headed home. So here we were, you know, in this little, uh, little apartment having to get out of there. And, uh, I ended up going to, uh, to Charlotte and I was in a, uh, in a hotel room and just trying to figure out really what, what is the next step? I mean, I did not have any money because I wasn't making any money. And I mean, I had a credit card and, you know, it was relatively maxed Maxed out, out, you know, with (laughs) what little things I was, you know, trying to, you know, buy and and procure. And, and ironically, you know, uh, I had had a number of people that, you know, was out there pitching me for sponsorship deals. You know, we call bird dogs back then, right? Mm. They're out there, you know, just pitching decks out, trying to find sponsorship. And I was, you know, just trying to figure out what to do. I was at Pat Patterson's all the time, just, you know, searching and trying to come up with an idea on what to do next. And I got a call and the call was from this bird dog. And he said that, um, uh, a company in Tulsa, uh, pure later products wanted to speak with me about sponsorship. So I had one suit to my name and not much money, but I got a ticket to go to Tulsa and I flew to Tulsa and met with uh carol warner and uh, terry weber and um uh, i think it was uh, uh david downing and those were i mean the president vp of marketing and another marketing person flew to tulsa and uh i mean i remember two warren place and i remember the building to this day and uh, i was like you know, two beacons in the night. I mean, it's just two big buildings side by side and, you know, in a flat landscape. And, you know, I was super excited and, uh, you know, got there and David took me in and went up to the boardroom and sat down and proceeded to have a, a very lengthy discussion and, you know, with Carol Warner and, and Terry and, and David. And we talked about a lot of things and they said they, um, you know, then my name came across the desk basically because of his wife, Sue Warner. And, um, they were the two people that were at the Shucks Tacoma Grand Prix, uh, and they were there on behalf of a GTE Sylvania. And they heard me speak after the race and said that Sue said, this guy can speak and he just lost the race. And, um, she evidently, you know, felt good about what I had said. And, uh, she what resonated with her. She said, as you were so gracious after you had lost and the way you spoke was, um, very memorable. Well, I mean, it, you know, Sue, it was, it was her that they were looking, they were trying to figure out, you know, about what drivers to call and talk to. I think Steve Chassis at the time was going to be interviewed and she, um, 
she said, Carol, why don't you just bring that young man in from, uh, from Tacoma? And uh, so that's why I was there. And spent the whole time talking about, you know, racing and, and what I was looking to do, and what I wanted to do. And, you know, obviously I didn't have a race team. Uh, I was, it was just me, myself and I, and, uh, basically, um, you know, we talked about things and I told Carol, I said, Carol, I said, look, I said, I've proven, you know, that I can run with these guys. I said, I've qualified well, I've raced well, you know, I had an outside pole. I said, there's a lot of things I've done, but the one thing that I'm, I'm better at at this point in time is I'm, I'm better outside the car than I am in it. And I said, I have a lot to learn. I said, but I know that with what you're doing, uh, trying to, you know, uh, as a branding mechanism, right, to go out and, and raise, ex, you know, the, ex, the exposure for the brand and to build the brand a pure later back, I said, I'm your man. And I said, um, I said, if, if you, I said, if you got a lot of appearances and you want me, I said, I will do an unlimited amount of appearances for you, no matter what you, you, you take me, you put me there and I'll do them for free. And I said, but I'll guarantee you next year, you'll want to pay me. I said, because I said, I can do the job outside the car. A lot to learn in it, but I can get that job done too. And so Carol had told, uh, told me to go to lunch. Dave said, Dave was going to take me to lunch and they were going to have some discussions and then we'd talk and reconvene after lunch. And so David Downing and I went out to lunch, come back and I walked in the, the boardroom and there was Carol and Terry and Carol said, you know, he said, uh, this is a little unorthodox, but he said, you got the sponsorship deal. He said, you go back to Charlotte, you find you a race team. And I didn't, I was speechless. I really didn't know what to say. I mean, I was elated and it was, you know. And I, how much money was it? It was $400,000. This was 1987 for the 1988 season and $400,000. And they were keeping 25000 for marketing. So I had $375,000. To build an entire cup. To put a cup team <laughs> on the racetrack for a, you know, for a year, which obviously at this day and age would seem like impossible. But it would be impossible. Oh, uh, you know, so <laughs> basically, I mean, David took me to the airport. I was back on an back airplane. Then it was near impossible. Yeah, back then. <laughs> but I headed back to Charlotte and I met with, you know, Pat Patterson and we talked about it. And, uh, you know, at that point, Elmo Langley was, had his equipment and Elmo had been an independent for a long, long, long time. And he was working with Jim Testa and Jim Testa had a uh, race shop um, right down in Kings Mountain, North Carolina, you know, where they, and he owned, owned a truck stop there. And uh, so we went down there and we struck a deal. And so I had a team and I had Elmo Langley as my crew chief. And we started off the, the 1988 uh, Winston Cup season with Pure Later on the car. And so it began. And so it began. And um, that, um, you know, that was uh, the start of my full time. NASCAR Winston Cup career, 1988. That's, that's next to come. So that's a great story. And, you know, I'd like to say just a little bit, because we want to bring some value to those of you um, who are listening that um, are trying to um, either bring up, groom a driver, whether it be your son or daughter, or you're trying to start a team. But the way that you had been humble, um, gracious in the way that you spoke, getting second, and especially it must have been very frustrating because Herschel McGriff was very arrogant and, and uh, you know, I know that that was quite your arch nemesis over there. And, um, you know, you wanted that win really badly and then to just run out of gas 
you know, after you knew you were faster. And I think it goes a long way when drivers can articulate not only their disappointment, but their appreciation and gratitude for being able to drive and presented the opportunity. And yes, things happened that were out of my control, but, you know, looking forward to the next one. And you don't see that in a lot of drivers today. And it really is something that's missing from the sport. And uh, I'd love to, you know, just have the opportunity to say it is a gift to be able to drive. There's so many people that want to do it. There's a lot of talented drivers that could do it, but those that actually have the funding and the talent and the support to get there, just the appreciation and the gratitude, no matter where you end up week after week is, um, is very important for those listening and not just as a mentor for kids and, and fans, but also for those potential sponsors that might be listening. And in your case, that turned out to be the biggest and most pivotal sponsor you had in your career. That, that was a, a life-changing moment. That really was, you know, if you, you, you know, I think most people, you know, in sports or people in general can pick one thing that really, you know, altered their life. And, you know, and that was it. You know, and my dad always said, you know, you're not the best race car driver in the world, nor will you ever be. And he said, but you need to be the most well-rounded. And so, you know, that's when I took speech classes and I was, I mean, I did Valley Ford theater for, you know, uh, you know, um, a Ford dealership, you know, doing the twilight zone, you know, and talking <laughs> racing in between all that, you know, sitting outside of grocery stores when people are looking at you like, what is this cat doing here? You know, and then doing radio, I mean, just doing everything you could do to become more proficient and ended up, you know, getting an opportunity to work with RJ Reynolds and the Winston brand for the West coast. And I think when I got back to the East coast, I really was ready for anything that they threw at me and, you know, to have the opportunity now to be representing a brand like pure later, uh, and getting a chance to run full time in the cup series. I mean, it was a true gift. And I've always felt that just having access to the sport and doing it really is, you know, a gift. And that's why I've been so passionate about it all these years. And, you know, you make a living driving a race car. I mean, who gets to wake up in the morning and love to go to work every day? Mm -hmm. Not many people. So I've, you know, I've been blessed. Um, so, but, uh, we'll stop there and we're going to kind of go back to some things we talked about earlier in the uh, episode that, uh, we're going to talk about a few of the nuts and bolts of things here. And I know a lot of people are obviously hearing and reading a lot about, um, you know, the next gen car, uh, with NASCAR and the, uh, in the cup series. And we're going to talk a little bit about something that I've certainly have uh, and can speak to, and that is concussions. Um, so I think if you really look at, you know, we, we obviously had, uh, you know, up close and personal view of the next gen car when we were with Starcom and we built the, that first car and went to Charlotte with it, with Kaz Grawl. And, you know, really the three of us, uh, you know, Chris Stanley and, uh, uh, you know, we were able Dave to, and, and Dave, Dave and Jones and, and myself mm -hmm. and, then, and then George, we put that car together and, you know, went through every, you know, every aspect of it and you could see the pitfalls. Obviously I had built, you know, I had been involved with Dave Fuge and him building cars. And then Steve Levitt, uh, actually built our cars when I was at Bobby Allison's. And, um, you know, so I knew, you know, a bit about what, you know, rigidity was and that type of thing. And, you know, so looking at that car with the bulkheads that car had on the center sections and then the, you know, the, such the, 
the tubing that they had, the rectangular tubing and how stiff everything was, you just felt like that it was going to, you know, a lot of the energy was going to go to the driver. You know, there's no crush zones. And, you know, I've been, I've been in a lot of wrecks. And when I was driving, for the most part, they were, they were concrete walls and not soft walls. And when you hit something like that in a concrete, I mean, it really, the energy went right through you and it really hurt. And so I really felt like that this was going to be something that, you know, was going to be a factor. And lo and behold, you know, um, NASCAR really did not really do any crash testing of the car before they really implemented it into the system. And then when they did do it, they saw that they had some major problems. Well, and I remember, I, I think they had full intention to do more testing, but they kind of ran out of time. And then, of course, midst of COVID, um, you know, reared its ugly head in the midst of all of this. So it, it really was poor timing, but they just didn't allow themselves enough time to fully test the car before they really were pushing everyone to buy them, put them together. Yeah, I think that... You know, we were obviously privy to a lot of things. You know, the first one of the first tests was at Auto Club Speedway. Uh, I think Richmond was the first one, but then the, the really first big mile and a half or two mile racetrack was at Auto Club Speedway. And we were out there for the West Coast Swing and yes, we were there for that first test. And, you know, not a lot of things got out, but William Byron hit the wall there and uh, actually I think broke a bone in his foot. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it was really hell hush hush, you know, for a long period of time. But, you know, everybody that, you know, was having difficulties driving that car because the racks were having a struggle with the racks, the cars were just, you know, really quick steering and they had no feel in the car. And so everybody was complaining about that. And then they were all getting in the fence and they had nothing to lean on because there was no side force. The car is symmetrical and what you're used to driving for so long is not there. So trying to relearn and, and, you know, you know, conduct yourself in that manner. The guys were, were struggling with the car and, and they're hitting a lot of walls and they were, you know, saying the car was, was hurting, you know, and, you know, the impacts were a lot more significant than what they were accustomed to, you know, hitting soft walls. So, you know, as we went along, you know, without, we did a lot of the tests, you know, I was, I was listening to a lot of the tests, uh, looking at all the data, you know, there's a lot of live data coming back and forth and we were privy to all that, looking at all those things and the tire data. And so, it was interesting. I mean, I knew that the tire was going to be a factor as well because of its low profile. You know, back when we drove, you know, in the old days when you had Hoosier against Goodyear and you went to the, from the bias ply tire to that radial tire, I mean, that was a nightmare and that was a very difficult transition for drivers then. So I knew that this low profile tire with no innerliner was going to be an issue. And certainly it has been um, a factor. And we're seeing it week in and week out, you know, and, you know, I think not so much in, in, um, they've, it's interesting. I remember Texas and why, do you, why was it such a nightmare at Texas? Some, some tracks seem to be so much worse than others. I mean, literally blowing tire. I mean, every caution was a tire issue to the point where you're thinking this completely alters the, uh, the winners and the placement of drivers in this race. Well, it's self-inflicted. You can talk about all the things and, you know, it's not really the issue of the tire. I don't think so much. Uh, it's a byproduct of it because it's so wide and the, the sidewall, I mean, it's a low profile tire. So you have very, you know, a low profile and a very small, um, sidewall. What happens is on that big 18 inch wheel, then it wants to, it loads that tire so hard laterally that it actually like pinches the sidewall against the rim and causes a problem. And then the teams, 
you know, they're trying, they found what makes the car go faster and that is ride height. So, you know, getting that diffuser in the back on the ground and grinding that off and running the car lower. So they, they take air pressure out of it below what the recommended, you know, um, pressures are to get a hundred thousandths of, of, uh, of ride height out of it. And that's, what's making the car go fast. So what happens is you compromise the tire in the early run, you know, when you got new tires and you're driving the car extremely hard and you're compromising the integrity of the tire at that point in the 35 laps in has been seem like the, the magic number. And then they start to have, um, problems, but the tire is compromised by the race teams, you know, because the cars are on lot ride limiters and the shocks and, you know, but they're learning what makes the car go fast and you don't have any tools to, uh, to do it with. So a unique thing, but you know, it all comes down to that their cars are crashing and the concussions. And, you know, I've had a lot of concussions and, um, I know I've hit some, you know, I've had some pretty hellacious wrecks where I've yes, broken yeah. a lot of bones and I've never come out of the seat. I've always stayed in it, but just the compression and the energy that goes through you, you, you break things. I mean, you break, you know, my shattered my shoulder blade in 12 pieces. I didn't come out of the seat, didn't hit anything, but just coming out of the belts and then being slammed back in the seat, you know, broke your, your sternum and broke a leg and, uh, broke ribs and shattered a shoulder blades and, um, you know, broke sternum, clavicle, you name it, it was broke. But of course, back then, even with all these broken bones, you still got back into the car, whereas today um, they would never allow a driver back in the car. In fact, well, we didn't have any baseline testing back then. Now, you know, they're making you do a baseline um, test for concussions so that they can see what your motor skills are and they have a baseline to uh, go in. And they'll actually do that when you wreck at the racetrack. You've got to go back in and go in the in the, in the uh, info care center and they run you through that test. So right away they get a sense, it's almost like the football players, you know, going into the blue tent and then, mm -hmm. you know, being whether they have to, you know, leave and go, you know, out of the game or not. So it's the same thing happens there when you go into the info care center, but you know, now you don't have recourse, you don't have the decision. So before, I mean, I can tell you, I mean, you had, you had, you know, you had blurred vision, you, uh, had headaches, you know, you did not really feel you like you could bend over or, or move your head quickly and you, you would lose your balance or, you know, you'd have vertigo. And so at that point, so you point, physically had those sure. symptoms sure. and you were still getting back into the, back in the car. car. Absolutely. So I really was not, you, you were not going to let somebody else drive your race car. That, that was the mentality back then. And, um, I was certainly along with it. I would not get out of my car. I would drive. I mean, I remember, you know, a tire blowing when I was driving for Bahari there in Atlanta running like third and blew a right rear and backed in the fence and hit the side and turned around and, uh, knocked me out and, uh, broke ribs. And I mean, I drove that whole year with broke ribs. I mean, they, I was, I was shaved. I was taped up and I would run every race. And then I got them broke again in California. So I ran the whole year with broken ribs and it was a painful year. And, you know, I ended up getting the pole at Charlotte, you know, and, you know, in that, that year 98, but I mean, just drove hurt the whole year. And, the mentality know. being that you would lose your sponsorship. If you got out of the car, someone else would replace you. A driver, a, a driver, driver would, would replace you, know, you. If you. If you get out of the car, somebody else is going to drive your car. And, you know, back then, you know, this was an opportunity that, you know, was fleeting. You, you know, you were just fortunate to feel like to, to have your, your job. And I was not going to allow somebody else to drive my race car. And I think that was pretty much the, 
you know, the thoughts that everybody had. Right. And then now though, I mean, with all the things that are implemented, you know, um, you aren't able to make that decision. It's made for you. So, you know, these guys now, I mean, they're obviously getting hurt. They're obviously, I mean, you know, Junior, you know, Dale Jr. obviously was like really the first really to, uh, to, you know, bring it to the forefront. And now you're seeing all these guys, you know, um, certainly having those problems and unable to, uh, to have any recourse and they're having to sit out of the car and look at, you know, look at Kurt Busch. I mean, he has had a major problem and it could be career ending. It could be situation where he gets to run some more races, but it will not be a full-time ride. And it just, you know, you get a decision gets made for you that you don't make. And uh, it's difficult. Your opinion, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, you truly believe that concussion protocol is in place for a reason. Um, and that it needs to stay there, but the next gen car is causing more concussions. Yes, I, in my opinion, uh, I believe that you know it, it is good that it's there. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I've always been a proponent that you know what this is a dangerous sport, and you know, you that's what I think the draw and the allure always was, right? You know, hey, you could die, and you know, you were defying that, and that's what I think a lot of people really, you know, it was something special to be a race car driver. Nowadays, I mean, we weren't, we're not killing people. We're not, you know, but we are now hurting them again to the extent that it could be career ending. And, and I think it's just because of the rigidity of this race car. And I think everybody knows it and they're hot. I mean, they're difficult to, to stay in from that standpoint and they've made some gains there, but certainly there's a problem. And I think that what's in place is probably the best thing for this particular car, but there, you know, we're going to address that in the next episode, but there are new changes coming from the next gen car for next year and we're going to discuss some of those things uh in our in our next episode so um want to thank everybody for li- listening and tuning in and um you know we'll uh, get ready for uh the next episode thank you so much for listening did this episode give you some value if so please follow us on facebook at Derek cope and instagram at Derek cope double zero and leave a comment or question and use hashtag race theory. We can't wait to hear from you. See you on the next episode.